Could you join me in thanking the praise team one more time? That was an awesome, awesome set. Listen, before we get into Ephesians 4 this morning, I want to address uh, what the video addressed, that it's Father's Day. And um, one of my uh, favorite pastors to listen to is a guy by the name of Matt Chandler, and he was talking once about the difference between like Christian women's conferences and Christian men's conferences, where at the women's conference, they're like, sister, you're doing great. You know, I'm just here to encourage you. And the men's conference, they're like, you morons, you're getting everything wrong, right? And I'm normally good with that. I think that's what, the way it should be. But today, we want to strike just a little bit different tone. All right, today, I want to just say uh, to all the fathers who are here this morning, we, we see you, right? And, and we see how hard it is, okay? Because this, this calling that is placed on us, I mean, the, strong, the strongest line of that video to me was that the world needs you. Or that God has ordained the world to need moms, and God has ordained the world to need dads, and God's ordained the world to need both, right? And, and so for all dads here today who are just leaning into Jesus, you're trying your best to point your kids to him, Right, we, we honor you today and we're thankful for you. Right? The difference that you're making in just, in just throwing yourself into that struggle, no matter how challenging it may be, is, is immeasurable. Right, to any dad who, who's maybe here because it's just Father's Day, and you're like, man, I, I could use a lot of improvement. Well, we're, we're all in that boat. Um, but just know that's you, man. We're here for you as well. And most importantly, Jesus is here for you. He knows what he's called you to is impossible in your own power. All right, but he's here to help you with these. He's here to, to be the source that you lean on. And maybe for those who today just brings a lot of rough emotions, rough feelings, um, some, some bad memories or just some bad current experiences, uh, then, then what we offer you is no different than what we offer in Bellas. Jesus Christ is here for you as well. Um, and this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, and it has nothing to do with fathers, and it has nothing to do with family, and it has nothing to do with structure, but I'm here to encourage you. Ephesians 5 is coming, Okay. And we're going to spend several weeks breaking down how God has ordained the family, how God has ordained marriage, how God has ordered and structured these things to work. And so if, you're, if you feel lost or overwhelmed in that, my encourage you is just keep coming back, right? Um, because we're going to get there and we're going to get uh, at least waist deep in it, if not further, okay? So uh, that's my encouragement to you. Today, we're, we're going to cover one whole verse in Ephesians 4. I know what you're thinking. One verse, he's got to be short. Yeah, you'd think, wouldn't you? Right? Uh, but just to get that started, I'm going to invite Randy Derlingen up. He's going to read today's passage for you. It's going to be Ephesians 4 uh, in verse 25. That's on page 816 of the Blue Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab it. Once you know that this is not our opinion. This all comes from the Word of God. And if you're physically capable, would you stand with Randy as he reads today? Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body that's it. That's it. aren't you glad you got this week yeah almost wasn't worth the walk up was it all right. let's pray father we thank you god we thank you for your word we thank you for this section in ephesians 4 we thank you specifically god for this verse today and and in even the conviction that it will carry uh the truth that it presents and we pray that as we uh as we unpack this as we look at this god that you'd be the one who speaks you'd be the one who moves you'd be the one who convicts you just shove me out of the way and lord may we be humble obedient responders to you this morning we pray all this in jesus name amen you can have a seat as you're getting settled, I want to open with the question this morning. How many of you really, really love rules? Right? You don't know? Of course not, right? Human beings, most of us from a young age, just aren't a fan of rules. We don't like rules. We don't like commands. We don't like guidelines. We like freedom. Right? We like being able to do what we want to do when we decide to do it. But there are 
certain personality types that, that like order more than others. And uh, my oldest child is one of those. Uh, Hattie was now 10 when she was younger. Uh, the way I would describe it is that she was obsessive about rules. Okay, and so anything they told her at school had to be the gospel truth at home. And so she came home one day and there was a, a fire, the fire department came and made a presentation at school and now I couldn't crack her door at night anymore because the firefighter said, if you leave the door open, we'll all die from a fire, okay? So, so we had to shut the doors at night now. And then the second thing that they taught her was that you need a safety spot, right? You need some sort of meeting location if the smoke alarm goes off. And so she was insistent that we have one. I said, you know what, let's, let's pick our neighbor's tree. Our neighbor has a tree in the front yard. If you hear the smoke alarm go off, just go out there and we'll all meet you out there. And I didn't think anything of it again until a couple of years ago when our air conditioning went out in July. And we've got this, and nobody's been able to explain this to me, okay? And so I still, there's a, there's a modicum level of concern for me in this, but we've got this room above our garage called a bonus room that whenever that room gets hot, the smoke alarm just starts going off repeatedly, Okay, I've, had, I've had people come out and look at it. Nobody can explain this, but when the room gets hot, it starts going off. So you can imagine in July with no air conditioning, the highest room of the house above the garage, that room got really, really hot. And there was one Saturday, it was about a two to three hour period where it went off between 15 and 20 times. And I'm telling you, every single time it went off, it did not matter where Hattie was in the house or what she was doing. She dropped everything without a word, sprinted full speed out the front door, and then went and stood attention at that tree. All right? <laughs> And then she'd wait for me to come out and I'd say, babe, there's, there's no fire. Like, the air's out. Like, there's no And, I, and then what happened, instead of coming in, she'd scold me for not going to the safety spot myself, right? Now, in the time since, she's become less of a fan of rules, which has presented some challenges as a parent. But honestly, I'm okay with it because it means she's normal and I'd like to have a normal kid, okay? Because human beings don't like rules. We don't. We don't like commands. We don't like orders. But honestly, if you think about it, this is an us problem, isn't it? Because the vast majority of rules are designed for our good. But what we do is instead we focus on what we're being told we can't do instead of focusing on what it's giving us. So let's take one we deal with all the time, the speed limit, right? Sign tells me 55. I'd like to go 60. I wish I, wish I could go 60, but there's stupid rules tell me 55. You know what the speed limit is designed to do? It's designed to keep you alive. Because if everybody could just drive whatever speed they wanted, there'd be a whole lot more wrecks and a whole lot more deaths. And if you look at it that way, oh, wait a minute, this is designed so that I might live longer, then it's all of a sudden not as a problem. But we carry this baggage that we have with order and rules into our relationship with God's word. And we formed all sorts of false perceptions about what the Bible is. And one of the most common false conceptions that I hear all the time is that the Bible is this divine buzzkill. And what the Bible is, is it's just a list of commands and rules and that God is against you being you. Right? The Bible is anti-freedom. It's anti-fun. It's anti-expression. And by the way, the opposite of that is true. And the overarching point of the Bible is that God is revealing himself to us. He's, in, in these pages, he's telling us who he is. He's shown us his character. He's actually in pursuit of us. And yes, in this book, you're going to find lots of commands. You're going to find lots of guidelines and rules in the Bible, but listen to me, they're not the main point of the book. They're a part of it. We need to adhere to them. We need to know how to approach these commands. But if we, if we make them the main point of the Bible, then what we do is we water down Christianity to nothing more than a morality manual. And the biggest problem with that is that those who follow that manual, those who adhere to those morals, they become the heroes. And let me be clear this morning, you are never the hero of the Bible. The other ditch that we can fall into is to overreact to that first mistake, right? We get, we get that the point of the Bible is Jesus, 
But then we, we claim that he's purchased such freedom that we then dismiss the moral commands. That the Bible is somehow old-fashioned. It was written to a different culture, and so I can ignore some of the things in there in the name of freedom. Or we just write, or we just sort of mentally write asterisks in the Bible by commands we don't like. And the asterisk means, okay, well, God meant that, but he didn't really mean it for me. Right? When he said that, he, he wasn't thinking about my situation. We can't fall in that ditch either. We're approaching this section in Ephesians 4 that, that, it deals, that deals directly with conduct. Or it deals directly with behavior. And so uh, it, to shape it, last week we looked at the process that Paul unpacks with of spiritual growth and sanctification. How in this, this lifelong journey of becoming like Jesus, first we believe in him. And then, and then in our growth we, we're to shed and take off what, what the Bible refers to as the old man. These are our old sinful habits, our old self, our old attitudes, our old ways. And then in the process, then we put on the new man. We put on Jesus' righteousness and humility and compassion and more and more. And so the next few Sundays, what Adam and I are going to do for you is we're going to take, take a look at the topics Paul writes about after that. And in, in each topic, he follows the exact same formula. For the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell you something to take off. Right, this is the don't do list. Then he's going to tell you something to put on. This is the do this. And then he's going to tell you why. Right? And so what I don't want us to do as a church when we approach that section is to fall into either ditch. Right, where, where as we go through this, we boil down Christianity to this list of do's and don'ts, and then we miss out on Jesus, and we can't ever miss out on him. But I also don't want us to hear these things, and then try to avoid applying them, to try to skirt being convicted by them, and to talk ourselves out of it as if they don't apply to us. What we need to do is find ourselves in the middle. And it hit me the other day, when I was doing, of all things, I was cleaning out my garage. And in that process, what I found was the owner's manual for my old mower, the mower I don't have anymore. Okay? And so for some unknown reason, right in the middle of this project, I just started flipping through and reading this manual of a mower I don't own anymore. And if you're thinking, man, that sounds really uninteresting to read the manual of a mower that you no longer own, you would be right. It was very uninteresting. Okay, but you know what I found in that? I found page after page after page of what could be considered rules. Things that they were telling me to do. When you've used the mower this many hours, you need to change the oil. When you use it this many hours, you need to sharpen the blade. When you use this many hours, there's 23 grease points on this mower. You need to grease up each one. And this many hours, you need to change the filter on and on and on again. And it would have been so easy for me to read that and think, my goodness, this mower company is just all about rules. Right? They're so pushy. They're just telling me what to do over and over and over again. But what's the point of the owner's manual? The point is that I already own the mower. And so as the creators of the mower, they were telling me how it would run best. They were telling me how to get the longest life out of it, how to avoid unnecessary breakdowns and more. The point of all the rules was to more fully enjoy the life of the mower. And the point of the Bible is Jesus Christ. In fact, the point of all life and all eternity is Jesus. But when we approach the moral commands that we find in the Bible as we are, this morning in the next few weeks, we must remember this. We've already been given life. We've been given life by our creator and the creator of that life is telling us how to get the most out of it. And by the way, he created us. He designed us, he shaped us, he formed us. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so he knows that left unchecked, to just leave me to do whatever I wanna do, I'm gonna be terrible to myself. And so what he wants to do is he wants to give me life and life to the fullest. And so in looking for, for an attitude of the heart to approach this section in Ephesians 4, here's, I found one in Psalm 119 that works. When the psalmist says this, he says, I rejoice 
Listen to that language. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And so here's, here's, the, here's the ask I'm making at the start of this. But as we approach these commands over the next few Sundays, what, what we want you to do is fight your initial gut reaction. Because without proper context and left to yourself, you, you're going to begin to push back. You're going to slide into just guilt and shame. You're going to begin to get defensive or say, well, wait, you don't understand my situation. Right? Instead, no, 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 let's do this. Let us remember that these things are in here. They're designed to give us life. And let's pray for a heart that drops everything that we're doing and sprints to the safety spot of God's love when we encounter something in his word that we don't like, remembering that he is God and we are not. I told you the structure, right? There's a, Paul is going to tell us something to take off and he's going to give us something to put on. He's going to tell us why. And so today what he takes aim at is this idea of honesty. And in one verse, he's going to paint a picture for us of how valuable and important it is. And so if you have your Bibles, look again at Ephesians 4 in verse 25 that Randy read for us. And Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I know it's one verse, but there are four different truths that I want us to pull out from that one verse today. And the first is this, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to put off falsehood. It was really clever that I came up with that because it's word for word from the verse, right? But as followers of Jesus, we're commanded to be people of integrity and honesty. And there's several different ways that we can get this wrong, right? And so I want to kind of walk us through those so that we can, we can have our attention drawn to them. And the first is just what well, you would just consider just good old-fashioned lying. You know what lying is, don't you? To lie is to intentionally distort the truth in an effort to deceive, right? And, and there are a few reasons that we do this. One, we might do it to avoid getting in trouble. Right? Well, it wasn't me speeding officer. It was the car in front of me. Right? I didn't do it, mom, really, right? And by the way, this has never worked, has it? Ever since you were a kid, it never worked. And, by, and any time that it does, it always ends up catching up to you. But in a moment of panic, right, when we, we feel like we might get in trouble, we keep returning to that same well. Secondly, we, we lie to make ourselves look better. Let me ask you, do you ever tell a story but exaggerate some details to make it more impressive? Right? We, we've all done this, haven't we? I mean, did you really come up with the perfect comeback when you're talking to that person? Or did you think about it 10 minutes later and then when you told the story, you said the perfect comeback? Right? Was the fish really that big? I mean, come on. Was your high school boyfriend or girlfriend really that attractive? I mean, look at you. You're not a great catch, okay? <laughs> right? I mean, and we can laugh at these, right? And we can dismiss them. But, but you know what's happening when we do this? And you're going to think I'm taking it too far, but I'll explain it. In that moment, we're proving that Jesus Christ isn't sufficient for us. You're like, man, Brett, that's an overreaction. Well, wait, hear me out. The fact that we're his... The fact that, that he loves us, the fact that he declares us as whole and righteous in his sight is not enough. No, we still want and crave and praise the, the praise and attention of men, even if we have to be dishonest to get it. And so you, can you see why something that we might think is minor actually breaks the heart of God? Right? Thirdly, we lie to make others look worse, and this shouldn't be a stretch at all for us to understand why this would break the heart of God. Proverbs 25 says this, like a club or sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. You ever heard that really dumb rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's Proverbs saying, no, 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 the opposite is true. Right? 
to purposely construct a false narrative in order to hurt someone else can do untold damage to their lives, to their reputations, their family. And honestly, before God, it reveals way more negative about you than them. But often the damage is already done. The fourth way that we can engage in this is just gossip. You know what my least favorite version of gossip is? It's Christian gossip. I'm I'm just going to tell you this so that you can pray for them. Stop it. Right? And by the way, in, in, in a context of the local church, you understand it's on us too. It's on us as receivers of gossip to put a stop to it. But if someone starts giving you dirt on someone else, just, just do me a favor, press pause. And you can do this with two questions. And if the first doesn't shut it down, the second will. The first question is this. Wait a minute, just before you give me this, how do you know this? How do you know this is true? Did you hear this from the person that you're telling me about? Or, or did you get directly from there? Or did you hear it from someone else who isn't involved in the situation either? And if that doesn't stop it, then, then here's the question that almost always will. Can I quote you on this? Can I go to the person that you're telling me about this and tell them that you told me this? Right. And if they can, then by the way, it's a genuine concern that they're sharing. If they can't, it's gossip, and we can shut it down. Because all, all these forms of lying, whether it's just to avoid getting in trouble or it's to make ourselves look better, others look glorious, or gossip, they all are lying. They all break the heart of God. The second is, is what I would just describe as just a general idea of just being a person of falsehood. So the persona that you, you put out there just isn't true, right? And this has always been a temptation for human beings, but whew, in the age of social media, we're just getting so much more efficient at it. Because there are two different ways that we can do this, but you'll quickly see the focus when we do this is, again, it's on us. It's either on getting the praise or attention of others. And so the first I would describe is the sugarcoater. Right, this is a person who only shares with you the highlights of their life. Right, they get a new home, they'll tell you about it. They get a new car, they get a new haircut. They'll show you all that stuff. They'll never tell you they're $30,000 in debt. Right, their, 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 their social media profiles will be filled with edited perfect photos that, that show their perfect life and they'll never ever share about their struggles. Because it's important for this person to create this persona of perfection. And even though they're left to themselves, that they, they're just as racked with doubt and struggles and happiness as anyone else, theirs is even more empty and lonely because they can't bring themselves to share it with other people because it would, it would bring their persona come crashing down. The second is the victim. Right? This person funnels everything that happens to them through the prism of being a victim. Right? And so what they want to do is they want everyone else to know how dramatic and unfair life is. And so everything becomes a complaint. Everything is someone else's fault. Every day is the worst day ever, and just wait till tomorrow, it's going to be worse than the day. And when that's the cycle you're in, when a day doesn't have a problem, then the victim just creates one. Because in that insecurity, in the brokenness, what the victim craves is not even love and care. They just crave attention. And so to get someone to just react in any way is what they're looking for. And what they don't realize is that this is an exhausting way to live. And when they do it long enough, they start to actually believe it. They truly see themselves as a victim when they're not. This greatly impacts their ability to move forward, to progress or grow in any way. And so they end up just being stuck, mad at the world, and not even even able to tell you why. And all of this, all this lying, this earning the praise of men, this, this, this harming others, this gossip, this presenting this perfect life that isn't real, or playing the victim that isn't real, all of this, is, they're all characteristics of the old self. They're all, they're all are rooted in our sinful nature. And all of them are coated in pride. 
Because they're all designed to make us look better or make others look worse. And you need to know this morning that the heart of God is the opposite. The heart of God is the one that exalts the humble and opposes the proud. And so as followers of Jesus, we are commanded by his word here to shed falsehood. To shed this out of our lives, to pray against this, to guard against it, to go back and apologetically correct it when we've done it, to repent, to confess this before the Lord and repent of it before him. We must shed these things. The second thing that I see in this verse that we can learn from it is that God hates lying. And I use that stronger language on purpose. As the end of Proverbs 6 tells us, it lists for us, the end of Proverbs chapter 6 lists for us seven different things that God detests. And in that list of seven lines in there twice. And there's another really important thing that we can do that I haven't talked to you about yet this morning. There's another important approach that we can take with moral commands in the Bible, and it's simply this. We can ask ourselves, what does this command teach me about the heart of God? Because remember, the point of the Bible is that we learn him. We get to know him. And so when we see a moral command in the Bible, we say, okay, what does this teach me about the heart of God? And if followers of Jesus are commanded to put off falsehood, that tells us that God hates lying and he values truth and he values honesty. And he's got good reason to do so. Because dishonesty is the work of his enemy. John chapter 8, verse 44, this is what Jesus said. He said, you, he's talking to a group of Jews who are opposing him. He said, you, are, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And listen to this. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that the root of all deception, the root of all dishonesty comes straight from the kingdom of darkness. And so the moment we as followers of Jesus slide into deception and slide into dishonesty, we're no longer doing the work of God. We're advancing the kingdom and agenda of his, own, of his enemy. And so, of course, he's not going to be a fan of it. He's also not a fan of it because it's destructive. We've already mentioned how, how lies can ruin the lives of other people. All sorts of people's names and reputations were ruined by something that wasn't even true. And, and my view on this is, man, we, we do a good enough job of hurting ourselves. We don't need each other's help. Right? We don't need to be doing this. God hates lying because it's, also, it's an offense to his character. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus, in John 14, claims the idea, and he says, I am the truth. In John 17, we're told that God's word is truth. You see, everything about God is truthful. Everything in his word is truth. Every move he makes is coded in honesty and integrity. And so in that, when the opposite of that is present, it's an offense to him and his holiness. And like all sin, he simply cannot tolerate it. But mostly he hates lying because it keeps people from him. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, sanctify them by the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. Like we just talked about everything that God does is based on truth. So we can deduce that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It's true when the Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. We've all, we've all slid into dishonesty and deception. We've all committed all sorts of sins, right? And, and in that, we have no hope of, of heaven. We have no hope of reconciling ourselves back to God. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to come take on the human form and live the sinless life that we couldn't. And then Jesus died on the cross to pay our price, to pay the debt for our sins. And then he rose again to offer us eternal life. And now what stands before us in John chapter 3 is that whoever believes will not perish but will be saved. And whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And that is true. And there are all sorts of false gospels, there are all sorts of false narratives, there are all sorts of false religions that are actively deceiving people and keeping them from the true God. 
Because any line of teaching, any line of thinking that does not declare Jesus Christ as the single hope of eternity is based on deception. And as we've seen, the roots of all deception are demonic. The origins of any such teaching is the father of lies. God hates lying because it keeps people from him. The third thing that I want to pull out from this verse is that we are called, and we're getting a little more positive now, but we are called to lovingly speak truth. All right, the church's foundation is Jesus Christ, who identifies himself as the truth. We are centered on the gospel, which is truth. Our greatest resource of wisdom is the word of God, which is the truth. And so it only makes sense with that sort of foundation that we should be identified, we should be known as people of truth, that our relationships should be based in reality and on truth. And so sugarcoating or victim mentality, they're just simply not allowed to persist in the life of a follower of Jesus. Both break his heart, both are an offense to his character, and both end up harming you. And here's the thing, here's why it doesn't make sense to me, because followers of Jesus, of all people, we should be the least afraid of honesty. Think about it. If, if, we, if, we, if we aren't open about the fact that we're sinners, and we aren't open about our struggles, what we're showing is that we don't get what we claim to believe. You understand the story of the gospel, you understand the message of the cross is that you're a sinner, don't you? You get that, that's the whole point, right? And so why would you ever try and act like you've got it all together? Because in doing so, you're trying to posture as if you don't need Jesus and you don't need his cross and you don't need the gospel, why are you claiming to believe you do? And then why? Why would you ever view everything through the lens of a victim mentality and attention play? Because in doing so, you're posturing and presenting this, this idea that God has somehow been unfair to you while claiming to believe that he's been nothing but gracious. No, instead, the gospel should shape our reality. The gospel should shape our relationships. The gospel should free us from any need to posture or create some different persona. I hope that you get that we're all sinners around here. I'm a sinner. Adam's a sinner. Brandon's a sinner. Our staff's a sinner. The elders, the Sunday school teachers, man, they're big sinners, all right? Listen, we're flawed. Please tell me you get that. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, we get it. You make it way too evident, all right? But understand, when we say that, we don't take pride in that. I, don't, I wish I wasn't such a good trophy of God's grace. But man, you need to be aware of it because you need to know that Jesus Christ is our only hope and he is your only hope. Do not put your faith and trust in a man or a woman. We need our relationships to be based on the truth of who we are, but we also need them to be coded in grace and love. I hope you also know this morning that there are bad times to say a truthful thing. I'm not advocating lying. I am advocating shutting your mouth. Right? Because sometimes people take the call to be honest too far. I call this uninvited honesty. And if that's you, here's, here's the question I would ask you this morning. Why would you ever rush? Why would you ever be in a hurry to speak a harmful truth to someone? The truth can hurt. It's what it does often. And a lot of times it's, it's needed, but it doesn't always need to come from you. And, and one of the greatest things that I've ever been taught is that we need to earn the right to speak into someone's life. Because these drive-by truth bombs always lack a key ingredient. They lack love. They lack care. They, lacked, they lack any compassion. And nobody benefits when you, in the name of truth, tell someone they're wrong without showing proper care for them first. And it was so nice to meet you today. By the way, your kids are terrible and you're a bad parent. I mean, even if that was true, that's not the time, is it? And listen, here's why, here's why we need to take this seriously. 
We, as followers of Jesus, have been given a truth that changes lives and changes eternities, and that is not a hammer to be beaten over someone's head with. It is a gift, and it's a gift that we need to steward wisely and lovingly and with great care and compassion because people will simply refuse to listen to you if they don't know you care. And the reason all this matters is Paul says that we've been brought into, by grace, by the grace of God, we've been brought into a community that is based on truth. We've already talked about it. It's the church where the bride of Jesus And God's word is truth. The gospel is truth. His Holy Spirit leads us into truth. And so to embrace falsehood, right, to embrace deception would be to simply reject who we are in Jesus. And as his church, we've been called to so much more than that. All right, so it's clear what this verse is saying, right? It's clear that we are to put off falsehood. We're supposed to speak truth between love. And so so how how do we go about applying this? Because that's where sometimes it can get a little more tricky. But here's, there's four things that I want you to think about this morning. Number one is this. Just be honest with yourself first. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking, and here's what he says. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know what Jesus is teaching us in that verse? He's teaching us that God wants us to be broken over our own sin first. You wanna know a really good starting place for you this morning to get really raw and honest? Be honest with yourself. What, what are the real motivations for the things that you do? Not what you tell people, not what you hope to believe are true. What are the real motivations for the things that you do? Where is it in your life that you're still being really selfish and self-centered or prideful? Do you exaggerate to make yourself look better? Do you sugarcoat? Do you play the victim? Man, save the most brutal honesty for yourself. Invite God's inspection into your life and into your your mouth and into your attitude and your character and then be broken by your own sin. Man, you realize how much less correction is needed in the body of Christ if we're all just broken by our own sin? Be honest with yourself first. And secondly, this this is crucial. We need to be honest about what you don't know. One of the best examples of this is, is in this really famous story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. And there, there are details that Jesus gives us and there are details that he, he doesn't. And in the details that Jesus gives us, you see this, there's a father who has two sons and the younger of the two sons comes to the father and says, Father, give me your inheritance. And what he's saying is, you're better off dead to me than alive. I want what I'm gonna get when you kick it so I can just go and live my own life. And no father in that day would ever agree to that, but, but in Jesus' story, the father relents. He said, you know what, take, take your inheritance. And the son immediately flees from the father's house, and he goes off into a distant country, and this is the detail Jesus gives us. He said, there he, he, he took part in wild living. That's all he says. And in the, in the midst of that wild living, he loses everything. The money runs out. There's a family that hits the land. He ends up being a slave and, and, and feeding someone else's pigs. And at that moment that he comes to his senses, he says, it's better at home than it is here. And so he goes home to return to the father to plead to be a slave in his father's house. And the father has none of it. He, he doesn't want any part of his son being a slave. He welcomes him back into sonship, right? He welcomes him with open arms and throws him a party. And then we find the older brother who's all mad. And the reason he's mad is because he stayed there the whole time serving the father. And he, the irony is that he's been a son the entire time and he feels like a slave. 
And he's, he's mad because his father's never thrown him a party. And so he starts accusing the father of being unfair. And this is what he says. This son of yours who wasted your inheritance on prostitutes. By the way, it's the first mention of those. And what you need to know is the older brother's been home the entire time. And this was first century. There was no Facebook. He wasn't stalking him on social media. The point is this. He has no idea what his brother's been doing. None. So what did he do? He filled in the story himself. Man, I'm here to tell you this morning, everybody has a story. And everybody's story involves pain. And it is not loving, and it is not helpful, and it is not truthful for you to fill in the narrative for them. Because here's what I know for sure. I don't know your entire story. And you don't know mine. And so unless you just give me the entire fire, unless you dump the whole story on me, unless I can literally walk in your shoes for a day, a week, a month, a year, I simply cannot know everything that you face in this life. And in response to that, what I need to offer you is the benefit of the doubt. I need to fight the urge to fill in the rest of your story myself. I could tell you about numerous times, my numerous times that, that I, was, I was coming with the posture that I was going to correct a staff member here. And thank God, I, I, I'll say most of them. I hope all of them, but you'd have to ask them. Thank God for most of them. He gave me the wisdom to, to always leave with this question. So tell me what you were thinking there. And almost always, when I knew the whole story, I was on their side. There's been all sorts of times that someone has asked to meet with me or get coffee with me, and you know what I do? I just start filling in the narrative. Oh, they're mad at me because I said this. Or they're upset because this happened, and, and then I get, you know, you get all psyched up for the meeting, get defensive, and most times it has absolutely nothing to do with what they want to talk about. You know what? I can't be doing that. We, we can't, in a, in a loving church, be doing that to each other. The call to honesty doesn't give us the freedom to take it too far. We've got to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Don't write someone else's story for them. Always remember you don't have the whole picture. Thirdly, this, this helps with all this and all these commands we're going to see in Ephesians 4. Just exalt Jesus. And you might think, that's pretty basic, but listen, do you realize that pretty much all the need for deception goes out the window when we stop thinking about ourselves? When I stop thinking about promoting myself, when I stop thinking about protecting myself, when I stop thinking about presenting this positive persona of me, when I stop thinking about getting what I want, the temptation to be dishonest just disappears completely. Because the root of dishonesty is pride. And the cure for pride is always to make it our aim and our goal to exalt and make the most out of Jesus that we can. Because the more we make it about him, the more free we are to be open and honest about who we are because we're not the hero he is. And then lastly, wherever you fall in this range, run to Jesus. I can tell you, I shared this with the staff this morning, my greatest fear for this message this morning is this, that you'll leave this morning and think, man, I really need to be more honest. I gotta work on that. Can I... Be honest with you this morning, you're never the solution. You're never the answer. Jeremiah 17 says this about the human heart. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Please, please, please remember that verse the next time you hear someone tell you to listen to your heart or follow your heart. That's the state of your heart. That's what sin has done to it. And so as you hear this calling from God's word today, I don't want you to think, man, I've got to fix this. But I got to do this. No, no, no. I want you to have a desire for it to be fixed. But then I want you to take that desire to Jesus.
because he remains the only one who can change a heart. He remains the only one who can transform a life. And so I want you to simply pray, Lord, there is deception in me. There is dishonesty within me. And so will you work on my heart to help me become more and more the person of truth that you've created me to be and continually asking him to enable you to, to, to do this, even as you fail and you will, repent of it, confess it, and then ask him to enable you to be more and more this person of truth. And if you're here this morning and you've never yet believed in Jesus Christ, you don't know him personally, then what I want you to know is this, that your heart is deceitful, it is stained by sin, and there's nothing that you can do to change that. I'm glad you're here, but I hope you don't think that being here got you any closer to heaven. I hope you know that there's nothing that you can do to ever earn your way to God or or build back the righteousness that you've lost. Your only hope is the perfect son of God dying on a cross to pay the price for the sins that your sinful heart has led you to. Your only hope, my only hope, our only hope is Jesus. And so we're calling on you today to believe in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. We don't, we don't want you to be a moral person in your own power, your own strength. We want you to follow Jesus. And the most compelling thought about me, to, to me about all of this is that the call to honesty is honestly a call to freedom. That's what Jesus is about. That's what his commands in the Bible are all about. We, we view them opposite. They're always about freedom. Because there's immense freedom and honesty. Do you imagine uh, someone coming up and you say, man, guess what I learned about you this week and having no fear whatsoever? Because you're an open book. Can you imagine the, the incredible freedom that, that comes from just releasing any need for self-promotion? You don't, you don't need to self-promote anymore. You're just done with it. Can you imagine the great freedom that comes from, from being released, from finding any identity or any value in how other people see you or think of you? You know how freeing that is? There's incredible freedom in just being an open book and being loved and being spared from condemnation. And that's what Jesus Christ is offering you. And so whether you came today as a follower of his or not, Jesus is your hope and only he can give that type of freedom. So run to him for the first time or for the 10,000th time. Your answer is him. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that your word presses on areas that we'd like to dismiss as not, big a de- not that big a deal. God, your word always finds a way to bring conviction over things that we'd rather not think about or just say, you know, it's not that big a deal that I do that. And yet when we get to the heart of it, when we learn about who you are, when we learn about your character and your integrity and your truth, God, we recognize that every single sin we commit is an offense to you. Every single sin we commit, put your son on the cross. And so, Lord, may that heavy truth cause us to feel enough conviction that's necessary to turn to you. But then, Lord, I ask that we don't wallow in it, that we understand that, that, that our sin put Jesus on the cross, but he went to the cross, that he paid the price, that he bought us freedom and grace and forgiveness. And so may we respond today in honesty with who we are, that we are dishonest people, that we are people with a wicked heart that is deceitful above all things and beyond cure outside of Jesus, that we are stained by sin and yet we are loved and we are freed and we are forgiven and we are whole in Jesus Christ. Lord, that spurs us on to obedience more than, than browbeating or legalism. That spurs us on to following you. So God, I pray that spirit would overtake this room, that anybody who's never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time, that right now would be their moment of salvation. They would call out and say, I believe Jesus. Forgive me, 
my wicked heart of my sinful ways and take over my life. Lord, we ask that you'll do this to the glory and exaltation of Jesus and every heart around this room. We pray this in his name. Amen. For Brandon and his team, lead us in the final song. We give you a couple minutes just to spend in prayer uh, with the Lord responding to some things he may have put on your heart this morning.